Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta-8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta-9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% a real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, My guest today is Lilia Correa-Selm. Uh, she's a dermatologist. She's also a, a MOHS surgeon, M-O-H-S surgeon. Uh, she's an assistant professor of the Morsani School of Medicine in the Department of Dermatology and Cutaneous Surgery. This is at University of South Florida. So we're going to talk about uh, her work and her research and, and everything like that. So Lilia, welcome. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for your invitation. Uh, I'm very honored to be in this podcast. Just to give you a little bit of my background, I originally trained in Venezuela. I did med school back there. And then I came here to do my residency. I initially completed an internal medicine residency in New York. Then I decided to, I wanted to go back home. So I did a dermatology residency there. I moved back here, did two more research fellowship, one in lasers in New York and lasers and cosmetics, and another one in a special imaging technology called confocal microscopy, which we're going to talk a little bit about, and then followed by a U.S.-based dermatology residency in New Jersey. Then once I finished my third residency, I decided to also do another fellowship in this special type of surgery called most, like you mentioned, MOHS surgery. And then after that, I joined Cleveland Clinic Indian River Hospital in the East Coast of South Florida as the director of cutaneous surgery. And I spent there three years also being an assistant professor of Florida State University. And then I came here to town. Okay, so what is a Mohs surgeon? What is the protocol like, first of all? So Mohs surgery is a very specialized type of surgery that we do mostly for uh, particular types of skin cancers, and it, it is based basically to our two main pillars of the surgery. Number one is tissue sparing, and number two is 100% clearing of the tumor. So in this type of surgery, we we cut the tumor on the patient the day of the surgery, and then we check it under the microscope the same day. The way that we cut in the surgery allows to see 100% of the tissue. So in doing that, we are we can do it in a way that we don't have to cut healthy margins around it, which is what the regular surgery do, because we have the luxury of seeing that tumor right then and there. If the whole tumor is 
hot when we do the first stage, then we just uh, reconstruct the patient that same day, at the same moment, and then they go home and they're completely cured. We we check we check the tumor. We we process the piece of the tissue in the same place on a lab in the same clinic that I am. And that same day, I read that tissue under the microscope. And then if that is all clear, like I don't see any tumor cells or atypical cells on the tissue, then we put the, the wound back together. We reconstruct it. And then the patient... Oh, you mean it's, in that case, it's a benign tumor, but you can find out that same day? Uh, so it's, it's only for skin cancer. It's only for malignant tumors. So usually the way we do it, we already know that this is a skin cancer, meaning the, the dermatologist had already done a biopsy on this patient and then refers it to us to cure the cancer. So this is more or less the curative cancer of that, of that tumor that was initially diagnosed by a dermatologist with a biopsy, okay? So you when, mean, But you mean that you're, you're taking out the whole skin cancer lesion? That is correct. Exactly. So when we okay. do a biopsy, we just take a very tiny scrape from the top. So we almost never take the whole thing out. It's just a, a very little piece just to see if it's a skin cancer. So when the patient comes to us, they still have two more left. And we essentially check whatever is left with the surgery. And then if the whole cancer is, is gone with the microscope, then we repair them. We do sutures. And then we send them home. Now, if under the microscope, we still see some cancer cells, right? Oh, there's still cancer cells that are present in the patient. Then we go back and we only take a piece from that little area that we can see that has the tumor. Because like I said, we have the luxury of seeing the whole piece. So we don't have to take the whole thing again, just going exactly targeted to the place that we see those cells. So it's a very specific type of surgery and very precise. So that's why the cure rate, the studies is, is approaching, it's actually 99% because like I said, it's very precise. We go exactly to the tumor. Okay, so is it rare that labs are able to do the histology that same day right there? Is it often sent out instead? Correct. So the other way to take out a skin cancer would be what we call a white local excision, which is a regular, what, we, what I call it, cut and go, which means just more or less cutting the cancer. But in this case, we cut a, a rim of tissue, a healthy skin around it, okay? Because we don't we don't have the luxury of seeing the piece on the same day. So like you just mentioned, we send it out to a lab. That lab processes the tissue and then takes chest, checks a piece, a representative piece of that tumor, and then tells us back in five, three, five, seven days that the whole tumor is gone. Um, but obviously this is after, you know, after we send it out to them. So it's it's a little bit different in that sense that it's not tissue sparing because we still have to take a ream of tissue around it to correct for a potential possibility that there is still tumor around. If you're doing, let's say, a circular incision, do any cells, like let's say you start a circular incision and you're starting it in a in what you think is a healthy area, but there's a few cancer cells. Did they ever get dragged along with the scalpel and deposited into other areas where they wouldn't be, even if it's only a few cells? Is there like a, a technique in cutting to avoid that happening if that happens? There is a very good question. Actually, we do not, and that I haven't seen that actually, and no studies have reported that. Uh, we obviously try to be very precise on cutting around it and not into. But even if we cut into the tumor, 
we are able to see exactly where the tumor is and just go after it. So there is not, there is not like you're probably suggesting a seeding of that tumor around it, but there is, we don't do it with, with mostly with moles, thankfully, but the good thing about moles is that we actually can see exactly what their cells are and we can go completely around it more or less so that we don't go into the tumor, but around the tumor. Yeah, that's excellent. What's the typical, you know, recidivism rate, I guess I'm calling it, it's probably the wrong term, with uh, traditional surgeries for skin cancer versus the one that you're doing? It sounds like yours is a lot more effective and the tumors uh, don't come back as often. Is that right? Yeah, very good question. So um, the cure rate usually for what we call wide local excision, it's pretty high. It's it's on the 90s. Depending on the tumor, it can range between the 92, 90, 95, or even 97. So it's pretty close. But most is 99, so it's much higher. And and you can imagine, you know, this is this is probably not as important, for example, in, in a place like the back, because the back it's we have a big back, right? So we have a lot of tissue there. But if, for example, in a nose, we don't want the skin cancer to come back. And it's also very important in the case of aggressive skin cancer, because you know, for skin cancers that are not at low grade, we call it low grade. If they come back, you know, they're not as dangerous. But if with a with a very aggressive skin cancer, we obviously want the highest cure rate because we don't want them to come back because they can potentially be very damaging and in some cases even can travel around the body or metastasize. So we want to make sure they're all gone. So that's why this most surgery is also picked for aggressive skin cancers as well. And then one of the things I also do, which I wanted to mention as well, when you were, you know, when you were asking me the question about like, how do you know, you know, if you're actually cutting into a tumor or not, I also use the the special imaging technology that I mentioned before, which is called reflectance confocal microscopy. So it's a type of microscope that you put in the skin and then I can see a cellular level at the right time. In, in We call it in vivo. So I, I sometimes get a little bit of a help with it. And then I map around. And then I know a little bit deeper where that tumor may be. So I, I assist myself both with that. And also another device called Dermoscope, which we use a lot when we, when we are doing our skin checks. But in this case, I use it just to delineate my margins or to delineate the healthy skin from the diseased skin. So I kind of use those two technologies to aid a little bit on where to cut and how to cut. Treehouse Live Rosin Liquid Diamond Vape Pens combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E. Dot com one e not two when you go there take your vape game up to new heights enjoy 30 percent off your order and get a free acapulco gold hhc pre-roll when you use coupon code genius again that's g-e-n-i-u-s hurry because the offer expires august 31st 2023 treehouse the best that legal delivered to your door thc has to offer hmm. are you able to help people that have melanoma or is that a totally different all game with skin cancer. Yes, absolutely. Actually, the melanoma, it's one of the ones I, I use the confocal microscopy because there are certain types of melanomas that are a little bit harder to see with a naked eye. So I, I try to delineate those margins so that when either me or the surgeon that's going to cut them um, has a little bit of a better idea of wh- what is the, the area that they would have to cut. Now, 
Unfortunately, with melanoma, because it's a little bit of more aggressive skin cancer, we still have to do margins, even if we do mold. So the good thing about confocal microscopy is I can delineate where the tumor is, and then we do the margins around it. But we know a little bit better of where are we like seeing the tumor with this microscope. So you're, uh, to answer your question, yes, I, I also treat melanoma. Okay, and the confocal uh, microscopy, are you putting a microscope on a, on a piece of, like, you know, if I was your patient, would I be sitting there and you literally use a microscope on my skin? Or would you have to biopsy a piece of it and then put it in the micro microscope? Actually, I would put it in your skin. <laughs> so it's a microscope that goes directly on the skin. So there That's are great. two. Yes, yes. It's very, it's very cool. When my patients saw it, they're always very excited to see it. You can actually see yourselves right there and there. It's, it's pretty exciting. But not to, I mean, just also to answer your question, there is another confocal machine, which unfortunately I don't have yet. Hopefully I'll have it in the near future that we can actually image tissue. So for example, if I cut a biopsy and I want to see it with this type of confocal, I can. Now, the type, that's another type of confocal machine, the same technology, but it's a different uh, microscope. The one I have, it, I put directly on the skin. So let's say, for example, a patient comes to my clinic and has a suspicious lesion on the face. And I cannot determine with dermoscope that the lesion it's really something that could come on. More or less, I'm still on the fence. And obviously, it's the face, right? So they're like, listen, I, if you want a biopsy, I want to make sure this is something that needs to come out. So that's the perfect place to put the confocal because then I put my, my microscope right on top of her skin or his skin and say, listen, the confocal is saying they're typical, say, so we have to biopsy this. So, or, or not, or the other way around. Um, it did look a little bit weird clinically, but then when I put the confocal, it didn't show any atypical cells. So good news for the patient. There is no biopsy to do. Or the other way I also find it very useful is for kids, because as you can imagine, biopsies are kids are not fun. They get very scared. They're painful. So if there's a spot that either the dermatologist or the pediatric dermatologist is a little bit on the fence to biopsy, I can image it and tell them, listen, don't worry about it. You can follow it or tell mom, listen, this probably needs to come out. So it has very neat applications in those cases as well. Mm, okay. Very, very interesting. So what does your research look like right now? Are you doing mostly clinical work or are you doing research as well? So yes, I'm doing mostly clinical research. I'm not doing a lot of bench work. And I'm, I'm focusing mostly, as, as you can imagine, in skin cancer. I do a lot with my confocal machine, as you can imagine. So there, I just published one paper that is about using a cream called uh, Emicromod for the treating of very superficial melanomas. And the way I did it, I confocal them before using the cream. I use the cream for what it is approved, which is 16 weeks. And then after that, I confocal them again. So it's it was a very good protocol because the patients didn't have to have a biopsy at the beginning or at the end, which is what we were doing before, because right. the confocal microscope will tell us if it's all clear or not. So it, we did a few cases and it was just published in uh, journals of uh, JDD, journals of drugs and dermatology. And then I'm also doing now three other trials. So one of them, it's about a vitamin for prevention of non-melanoma skin cancer, which is the basal cell squamosal carcinoma. And this is, uh, it's vitamin B3, niacinamide. 
So there has been a few studies already published on this. The first one was in Australia about eight years ago with really good results. It was a prospective trial that they did for three years and they showed that in the patients that were taking the vitamin B3, 500 milligrams twice a day, they had less incidence of uh, squamous cell and basal cells. So after this came into play, I started using it in, in my patients, which anecdotally I've seen really good results. But now we're putting the data together. We're doing an, our experience in eight years of this vitamin. So we're, we're working on the data still, but very promising, very promising. With the confocal microscope, do you ever look at things that are typical, but they usually don't use the microscope for? Like what if you have jock itch or skin tabs or again, like various rashes? You know, I don't know. I, I guess I would uh, be like a kid in a candy store and I would use it on everything. Yes. see what I can see. Have you tried that? Yes, absolutely. So there is a very good question. We do, I guess your question is, do you use it in other that skin cancer, right? Do you do that? Um, actually, we do. We just published an, a recent paper on a patient that had very bad fire ants bites on the lower extremities. You know, being in Florida, fire ants are a very common plague here. So mm. it was, it was a very bad rash. So we confocal it first, we gave her the treatment, and then we confocal it afterwards. And then we proved how the, all the inflammatory cells that were causing this rash were gone with the confocal. So it's a, it's a very neat and, and very impressive result. So mm -hmm. we do use it in very like different rashes. We also, I, I also did a poster on like normal skin, but like different skin types. So how can it look different, for example, a patient that is a lighter skin type versus a darker skin type? How do, how does those structures look different? And they do because uh, confocal microscopy is basing the reflectance of all the structures in it. So, and, and as you can imagine, the higher skin types have more melanin. So all yes. the structures in the, that skin types are, are much more obvious than in a lighter skin type. So it was very neat to kind of see all those different structures that we can see clearly in higher skin types versus the lighter skin types. So we we have it in the clinic, and I would have to say we try to put it in as many things as we can. We also try to use it, um, for example, in, I think you mentioned um, fungal, like tinea in the body. So we have yeah. seen also some tinea, which is a fungal infection. Um, on uh, sometimes on the feet, sometimes on the skin, on the regular. Well, what do you What do you see when you look at the fungal infections? Like, you know, it'd be really cool if you looked at it and then you put a little bit of the cream on it. Like, you tended, I forget the name. There's two of them. You know, like the brand names are like Lotrim yeah. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. fungal like, have you ever tried that and then looked under the microscope what it looks like when you apply antifungal? You know, like, can actually we see that what we call the hyphae, which are in fungal structures, which is the same thing you see on the microscope when you do a scraping of a fungus. So you see all those, I don't know if you remember from your biology classes, which are, uh, we call the hyphae. So those we can see with confocal in the skin. And certainly after we do the treatment, they, they would disappear. And then the other interesting thing that we have seen with confocal, which I mean, I, I may find, I may, I may email you that image because I think you're going to find it. Fascinating. We found some parasites. So 
there are these uh, parasites that live in everybody's face or called a demodex, but in certain type of patients, because of certain conditions, they can be an overgrowth of them. And then we use the microscope for those patients to see how they, they look. And actually we capture one of them, like the whole structure of the parasite. So I, I, I'll send you that little snippet article because okay. That's great. it's very fascinating, I think. Yeah. Um. When people get certain fungal infections, are there any benefits to it? I know it's a weird question, but you know, if someone has a fungal infection, does it does it prevent them from getting other problems that they otherwise might get? So, in, for example, and I'll, I'll give you this is this has to do a lot of like with microbiome, right? So, what are the good things that are in our skin or in general in the body too, right? Because the gut is also a huge reservoir of this quote-unquote, good bacteria or good microorganisms that actually defend us from other bad things, right? So this the, this little parasite that I'm telling you, it's actually when it's not in an overgrowth state, it has shown to actually regulate a lot of functions in the face. So it, it regulates some of the sebums, it regulates a lot of important functions that we should have in our skin. I would say nowadays in the microbiome is a huge research environment. We're, we're doing a lot of research on that specifically on more also on eczema and rosacea are like huge areas. It's not my, my main focus of research. I've done, I've started doing some in acne actually, but it's in a very, very, I would say early stages. So I'm doing mostly like what have been used in terms of improving microbiome for acne. Okay. So instead yeah. of something to cure it, doing something to improve the environment and see if that improves the acne. So there have been some studies done on this, mostly with some types of bacteria that have been shown to be, like you say, the good bacteria with, with good results, impressively good results. Now, none of that is my own research. I am, I'm, I'm a little bit passionate of it because I, I believe that we can use more regulation of our body instead of a medication of our body, it will be ideal, right? Because that that's what we want. We want to go into a, like a, a natural state, a normal state more than dysregulated. So if we if we get to do more research on that, I think it's awesome. But honestly, I, I haven't started to do much of that, but it's something that I have it on my horizon for sure. Well, what, is, uh, what does acne look like under the confocal? And maybe, you know, yeah, let, let's start with that. Like blackheads, whiteheads, acne, things like that. I just, I guess I want to give myself one and look at everything. It'd be pretty cool. <laughs> sure, sure. So, and it, 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 you can't see it, actually. You can't see acne. So you can see, for example, a lot of keratin under under the pores. You can see a lot of keratin in around around the area because that's mostly the accumulation of acne. You can see a lot of inflammatory cells, okay, and inflammatory yeah. acne. You can see them. You can see them around uh, what we call the follicles. You can see them around the glands. You can see how the glands are much bigger than the regular ones. So you you can definitely see a few of the size of acne that you would see normally on a microscope. Oh, interesting. Um, anything else you've looked at under the microscope that surprised you? Like, wow, I didn't know that was going on. <laughs> you know, I I think that might so. Yes, actually. The other thing you can do in a microscope, which is very interesting, is you can take videos, 
Okay. Mm. So, um, cause you see them on a live, when you see them, you're looking on a live camera, you see the, the cells on a live camera and you capture them and then you can show the images later, but then you can also catch a virus. So I think one of the things I find more fascinating is that we can actually see the blood vessels with the red blood cells inside them, like going around. So that time and time again, I, I see it all the time because obviously we have a lot of capillaries and vessels on the skin. And every time I put the microscope, I see them. But every time I see them, I, I, I feel, wow, this is so cool. Because you can actually see the cells going inside. So it, I, I, it's one of my favorite things to see. Are you able to do a limited time-lapse video? Yeah, even a few minutes or an hour? Like, has anyone done this? And what do they see? Yes, you can. And you can see, well, actually, for example, the parasite. You can see the parasite moving. You can see right. the like legs moving in it. So in the video, which is kind of fascinating. Right. The other thing we did, which I also, I also published on that. We try to do 3D models, reconstructs of the imaging. So we try to reconstruct those images into like a cube of a 3D image. So we can kind of remodel those cells and see how they actually would look on a 3D environment. And we did publish a few of those cells also, which it's, it was really fun and fascinating to see. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So what are what are some research questions that you're trying to answer right now? Yes. So um, like I was telling you before, so I'm huge on that same environment of trying to take the body to the natural and prevention state. I do, yeah. I try to do a lot of uh, prevention of skin cancer and how to use quote unquote natural or less aggressive things to prevent it. So that's why the vitamin B3 was a big one. The other one, I'm, that one is one that I'm I'm just starting now, is how to use or if it actually worked the um, human papillomavirus vaccine to prevent and potentially treat squamous cell carcinoma, one of the type of skin cancers. So there have been uh, very preliminary cases where they have treated both with systemic and intranational vaccine, this vaccine on squamous cell carcinomas with pretty good results. So um, I envision a trial, a prospective trial with patients that are not good candidates for other, for our standard of care treatments, because either they have failed on them or they're too big to, for example, go to surgery. So I would want to offer this type of trial and see if it works for them. And just, I mean, the rationale behind it is because it is believed that the HPV actually makes some of this keratinocytic cells, the squamous cell actually develop some of the mutations that will uh, ultimately make the cell grow to a skin cancer. So if mm. hopefully we prevent that type of virus there, then that will stop those mutations to happen. So I'm, I'm very hopeful about that trial. So hopefully we'll, we'll see how what it shows. I'm, I'm just about to start pretty soon. And then um, I have also a couple in the pipeline. I have what I use a lot of chemotherapy cream, both for prevention and treatment of superficial skin cancers. So there is a new one that have, is already at the approved for um, for precancer spots. So I'm I'm envisioning a trial specifically for organ transplant patients with actinic keratosis to see if that cream works on this specific type of patients. Have you ever looked at closely at the skin and the armpit? the left versus the right and to see what's different or the left eyebrow versus the right, you know, the left part of the face versus the right left leg versus the right. I would think there might be important differences that maybe would, would help if that was characterized. 
Sure. So I haven't done it per se, like in, let's say in the same patient, right? I, I always try to look like for pathologies or, or something, right? So I, I haven't done it quite in the same patient. I'm not sure if I will find any difference because remember, we're looking at like very, very small microscopical structures, right? So when, and, and you know how everybody says that none of us are symmetric. We, we're all asymmetric, you know, that's so all. Like, like, like microbiome from the left armpit and the right armpit, you know, I, I was maybe getting gross, but you know, I, sometimes you smell yourself and it smells different. So I would think that there would be different bacteria, you know, in the left versus the right. And if you looked at that, characterized it, and then tracked it over time, I wonder if that would reveal some kind of underlying pathology, if there's like a, diver, you know, more of a divergence over time. Oh, you were thinking more, not not so much on the structural side, but more on the part of the bacteria slash fungal microbiome. Okay, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, maybe both. Maybe both. I don't know. I mean, I just, yeah, I just don't so know I, if um, anyone characterizes this, if it could be a useful marker for things I, happening. Yeah, I haven't done it. I mean, for sure, we know that every area of the body has a different microenvironment, right? We know. Maybe, that, maybe but... you should like secretly do it over the next few weeks and right. let me know. <laughs> yes, I'll get a little piece of skin or a little culture from both sides and see if they're different. I have a like a troop of students that are always looking for ideas to do trials. Mm. So uh, this is will be an idea for one of my students that are always looking to. <laughs> Um, uh, trials. Yeah, it, it would be very interesting, actually. I don't think I don't think it has been done, actually. Okay. Well, um, very good. What, um, it sounds like you're really innovative in what you do. If, if someone goes to a, you know, a dermatologist, how likely is the dermatologist going to be using some of the things you use? Or is it pretty rare still and not many dermatologists use these things? That's a very good question. So there are kind of like two things that I use that I use fairly frequently in my practice. So one of them is the dermoscope, which is the little light that I was telling you about, which uh, we use a lot to distinguish if it's a skin cancer or not, but we also use it in rashes and other type of skin diseases. And I would say the dermoscope, you know, we thankfully we have it around for 10 plus years and almost all the residency programs, if not all, already train residents on it. So I would say probably... 80 to 90 percent of the dermatologists use it already so that's something that i think it's widespread at this point now with the confocal it's a different story because there are a few limitations with that machine so number one is not cheap (laughs) it's not a a cheap machine as you can imagine it's a low energy laser so every time you put the word laser that is accompanied with a fair amount of money so Mm. this is a type of laser so it's not cheap and then you have to also train your eye on reading it. So not anybody that see the images knows where they're looking at, even dermatologists. So I, I did a, a fellowship to read it. And, and you, can, you can train on courses. Now we have a little bit of easier courses that you can do over a few weeks or a few months. But obviously not all the dermatologists can do that or have the resources to do that. So at this point, I feel the confocal microscopy is mostly in big centers that can afford to have, you know, both an expensive machine and the dermatologist to train on them. Additionally, also you have to have a good, I would say, clinic dynamic. So you have to train your staff and yourself because, you know, you cannot, you cannot afford to lose seeing three patients in, in spite of doing this confocal machine, right? So you Mm. have 
in a way that it goes with your flow of your clinic, right? So, and that sometimes takes a little bit more people and a little bit more training as well, which not a lot of dermatologists can afford either. So I would say it's mostly in academic centers and big centers that can afford those few things. Okay. But also to your point, uh, what I do a lot is I have a lot of my community dermatologists send them to me. I'll, you know, I'll image them, I'll map it, I'll, you know, give them my feedback. And obviously the patient goes back to them because they're, they're the dermatologist of the patient or even, even pediatric pediatricians that wants me to see a lesion. I tell them, listen, don't worry about it. And I send it back to them. So, you know, we, we give also a nice service to our community in that sense, because it's, it's kind of like a win-win situation uh, for both of us. Mm. Okay, very good. Well, Lilia, what's the best place for people to learn more about your research? Because it sounds like you have like a genuine interest in what you do. Not that other people don't, but you have like this, um, this like excited curiosity about what you do, which is really cool. So, so it, you know, I encourage listeners to find out more about what you're working on. So where can they go? Absolutely. So if you go, if you look up my name at the USF website, I publish almost all my, my everything that has been published is there and everything that is on the pipeline will be there. So I have both, uh, I have my webpage both at USF and at Moffitt. So with my name, you look Lilia Correa USF or Lilia Correa Moffitt. Both uh, pages should have my pipeline research. And then obviously once you click there, we try to post the links of the article so that if people is interested to actually reading more about it, they can click the link and then they can go to the actual article per se. Okay, very good. Well, Lilia, it's been a great call. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. It was a pressure, Richard. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right, hold on one second. Remember, before you go, you've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, -E T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep. With unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab tested to ensure quality and consistency, Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to Treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. Remember, there's one E, not two. And enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.